Michael, we're going to start off this episode with some very important fashion news. As you know, because you know way too much about my sartorial preferences, I've been wearing AG jeans since the brand's inception. Well, it turns out that was 20 years ago, and for the past two decades, AG jeans has been dominating the world of premium denim, crafted with quality and destined to be worn every day. AG jeans' basic essentials collection nods to that heritage and employs several knit techniques to craft garments that are both sophisticated and extraordinarily durable. This fall, AG jeans has introduced the latest incarnation of the basic essentials program with its French Terry collection, specially knitted by the brand to ensure comfort and style. If you spent most of the pandemic in sweats and you aren't quite ready to give them up, the French Terry collection is perfect for you. The Basic Essentials collection also offers loads more style with jersey knit tanks, tees, polos, crews, and pullovers, as well as a smart collection of ribbed knits. Check out all the colors and styles at agjeans.com. Happy Saturday. It's September 18th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Michael, I think I made it through Fashion Week without contracting Delta. Success. <laughs> wow. That's a different world if you're, if that's the, usually be like, what did I get in my swag bag or, you know, who did I end up oh, going totally. home with? How drunk did I get? But the bar now is, did I survive Delta free? Yeah, totally. I used to care a lot about my seat at Marc Jacobs. Now it's like Marc Jacobs didn't even have a show and I was a little concerned about getting Delta. I did not. There were some fun times to be had by all, but it felt like a very different season here in New York, at least at Fashion Week. Everyone was kind of tiptoeing back into the world again, bringing out their craziest outfits, but keeping their distance. It was very curious. I've enjoyed reading all of the fashion criticism, you know, from Vanessa Friedman and the likes about how they're making sense of all of this. But what we saw on the runways was apparently, did you hear the gossip? This is awful, but I'm going to repeat it, that Anna Wintour was not happy with the shows and that she was sending emails to designers. Should I be repeating that? I read it in Demois. All right, I'm just going to bring it out here. Once again, I'll just say, do I really care what Anna Wintour thinks? Oh, this. Okay, did you go to, you went to Tom Brown. Did you like it? Yes, I, Tom's a very good friend. Of course, I loved it. It was great to see a great mix of people there. I saw Russell Westbrook and James Harden. James Harden of the Brooklyn Nets, who told me, get set. This season's going to be, be even better than last season. So I got I got my sports update, as well as my fashion hit. So it was um, lovely. And it was great to see Tom showing back in New York. He usually shows in Paris, but he brought the show back this season to New York in order to um, sort of help the city emerged from COVID and also as a way to boost. It was the opening of this week of his partner, Andrew Bolton's new show at the Metropolitan Museum. And of course, La Gala was this week as well. Ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, speaking of Anna Wintour. <laughs> we don't have to talk about the Mad Gala, but what we will talk about, I do want to know what is your fall fashion look? <laughs> Are you breaking out the fancy sneakers or the ugly grandpa sneakers for fall? Yeah, you know me, just big Balenciaga clod hoppers. Uh, no, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't, I don't make many moves. You know, it's just, it's all about corduroy this season. As, 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 it, that's all it's going to be. I'm into cords. I bought one new sweater from Sakai and some Lucchese cowboy boots when I was in Santa Fe that are the cat's pajamas, and that's it for now. But see, are you going to really wear those cowboy boots in the city? You know, the weird thing is, yeah, they have like a rounded toe. They're not like. They're the perfect hybrid of... Anyway, you don't want to hear me waxing on about cowboy boots, Michael. Yes, I'm going to be wearing them in the city, and I've already been wearing them. And you're going to admire them. Promise. Promise. All right. It's a great time in New York. 
new restaurant openings. Excited about that. I wanted, I'm looking forward to Ignacio Matos' new place, which is opening up in Rockefeller Center. It's called Lodi. It just opened up this week. They have lunch and dinner. It's like a cute little all-day cafe inspired by Italian cafe culture. What more do we want in life, Michael? This is like our spiritual homeland. I don't know. Just sort of just be Marcello Mastroianni sitting out there all day reading the newspaper. Well, speaking of that, let's dive in. Where shall we begin? You know where I'd like to begin, Ashley? Okay, we've got a great view from here this week. It's curious because, I don't know if you've been following the news, Stephanie Grisham, who was the White House press secretary for and chief of staff to former First Lady Melania Trump, she has written a new book called I'll Take Your Questions Now, What I Saw in the White House. And in it, she compares Melania Trump for her actions on January 6th or lack of actions on January 6th to Marie Antoinette, right? And it just so happens, you know, as, as she says, you know, she says, she says, I see you like Melania, the doomed French queen, dismissive, defeated, and detached, right? So we have a great view from here this week, our piece that kicks off the issue week by Nancy Goldstone, which uh, builds on her book about uh, Marie Antoinette. Uh, and it has got some surprising sort of, you know, everyone sort of thinks Marie Antoinette is this sort of dilettante and as was sort of like one who obviously clearly we believe or many people believe said, let them eat cake. But it's a surprising reassessment and recontextualization of Marie Antoinette, right? I love Nancy's writing. She starts off her view from here with this sentence. You know you have an image problem when, some 225 years after your death, women as wildly dissimilar as Stephen Mnuchin's wife, Louise Linton, her polar opposite, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and now even Barack Obama are all accused of having a Marie Antoinette moment. I love this feminist rethinking of this uh, poor maligned 14-year-old who arrived in France in May of 1770. She'd never even left her family. She'd never even been out of Vienna. And she was wildly underprepared for her new life as the future queen of the biggest power in Europe at the time. The other great thing about this book is in her piece is it sort of reminds people, like, as you said, she shows up in France when she's 14, too. And by the way, Louis, the future king, Louis the Sixteenth, is only 15, the man she will marry. At the time, Louis the Fifteenth is still king. And as Nancy says, for nearly 50 years prior to her arrival, Louis XV reigned over France and during the time pursued a corrupt, predatory, entitled, and contemptuous agenda. And he also, you know, she compares him to basically an 18th century Jeffrey Epstein. He conveniently kept a brothel called Parc aux Surfs, which specialized in young women on the palace grounds at Versailles. So when he dies in 1774, Marie Antoinette is 19, Louis is 20, they assume the throne, but they're woefully unprepared. Not only that, you learn later that Louis XVI basically was on the autism spectrum disorder. And so then you consider what Marie Antoinette is up against. He's Louis XVI's ministers, sort of figure out how to manage around the king and get the politics they want passed. And so... Maybe we shouldn't put too much blame on Marie Antoinette. And as as Nancy also says, even the infamous let them eat cake remark attributed to the queen, there's really absolutely no evidence she ever said this. So a great, as I say, recontextualization of Marie Antoinette and maybe the insult that comes along with being called that. Yeah, exactly. The propaganda machine was alive and well, even in the 18th century. You know what I would say about the let them eat cake remark? It's an example of let them eat fake news. Fake news, not just a recent development. Okay. And speaking of royals and the problems with royalty, can we just go right back to 
a story we had last week out of the UK with Stu Heritage updating the mess that Prince Charles is in and sort of seems to, the taint seems to keep spreading for him? Oh dear. It's like no good deed goes unpunished. Prince Charles has tried to create these charities to help those in need. Unfortunately, they've turned into a bit of a scam. It turns out last weekend it was reported that his charities had accepted more than $690,000 from a Russian oligarch who, you know, had been convicted of money laundering at some point. Some of the money seems to have gone missing entirely from the charity. Uh, It could have been accidental mismanagement or deliberate subterfuge, but it calls into question Charles's ability to run a charity and certainly says something about his ability to run a country. Uh, so this Russian in question is a guy named Dmitry Luce. He was a banker born in Turkmenistan who now lives in London and he has long sought British citizenship. And he employed a fixer by the name of William Bortwick who has been used to help these wealthy foreign nationals gain British titles, honorary positions, or full citizenship. So now it's just looking like this was a terrible pay-for-play scandal and Charles has become entangled in all of it. Yeah, you know, what's fascinating me is again like it so it shows that so this Russian in question Dmitry Luce it seems that one of Charles's fixers this guy William Bortrick suggested to him, Luce that he make a donation of this uh, this money to the Prince's Foundation the bulk of which would be destined to help renovate a decaying 18th century Scottish pile known as Dumfries House now like it just makes me think like Charles just keeps seeming to be like trying to get money to like so why doesn't someone go to HGTV and just say like I've got a show for you like it's basically people can come in and renovate these houses for Charles and and then just see what happens with it but it just is I would watch that show a competition to sort of come up with the best renovation of one of his houses yeah absolutely well speaking of English country houses Michael we have another fun story in the issue by Dan Rubenstein I love Dan he's a marvelous design journalist about how grandma's Fusty old decor is now the height of fashion. And now people are paying exorbitant amounts of money to hire interior designers to make their brand spanking new homes look like the place that their grandmother lived in in 1955. See, then Charles, like what he should do is like he should just go on the gram and start posting images of these old houses and selling off the pieces from them. Hey, that's one way to make a living. Well, what I found most sort of intriguing about this piece is there is a the kind of... um reigning duke of this look is a guy named Martin Brodnitsky, right? As they say, he's a leading tastemaker in the interiors game. He co-founded a line of furniture and lighting, which some people might know called And Objects, but he's known mostly for his hotels and restaurants, such as the Ivy and Annabelle's nightclub in London. He's got the Surf Club in Miami and the Beekman here in New York. But lately, he's been busy, most recent project, his own large apartment in a country house in West Sussex, which he has sort of made a kind of showcase for this style, right? Yeah, it's all about the fusty old sofa, the dusty colored walls, mixed and matched prints, everything looking like it was ad hoc thrown together. Bonus points if you can find an avocado green toilet at a salvage yard. That's really the the top do top. Avocado green toilet. It's never something I thought I would be coveting for my own home, Michael, but here we are. Everyone's got something they long for. Speaking of things we don't understand, let's talk about the latest trend happening in fashion. Laura Nielsen tackles this in the issue this week. Back in the day, Michael, cults used to be something one would avoid. If you got entangled in one, it was considered to be a mistake. Remember, Nexium. No more. Apparently, cults are the height of fashion, and we are seeing this play out 
in movies, in books, in podcasts, and certainly on the fashion runways. This all started perhaps with Margaret Qualley's uh, characterization as a cool member of the Manson family in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now we see Nicole Kidman in her new series, Nine Perfect Strangers. She plays a wellness guru torn from the cult leader's playbook. But in the meantime, tunics in this kind of religious uniform have emerged as the height of fashions. You know some fashion I'm looking forward to? Tell me. David Chase and his forthcoming Sopranos film, which looks at Tony's pre-mob life, and it's set in New Jersey in the mid to late 60s. I've seen some images from it. I think the fashion is pretty amazing. He's brought a lot of his beloved characters back to life for this prequel, which is called The Many Saints of Newark, and it tells of Dickie Moltisanti, the father to Tony's erratic nephew, member Christopher Moltisanti, and young Tony's search for a father figure. And uh, if you, some of you probably know, but young Tony is played by Michael Gandolfini, who's 22 and who was only 14 when his father died. So he's stepping into that role. Excited for that. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Michael, after our discussion of The Sopranos, I think we need a bit of humor. And luckily, our guest today provides that in spades. We have the man, the myth, the legend, John Lithgow, here to discuss his new book, A Confederacy of Dumpties. This is his political satire of not only Donald Trump, but evil charlatans throughout American history. And he's going to join us to tell us all about how he became a best-selling New York Times poet. Back to fashion, Michael. One of the reasons we love AG Jeans is that the brand has developed a vertical manufacturing operation rooted in quality and sustainability. It uses this to great effect in its knitwear. The latest addition to the brand's offerings is the French Terry Collection, which specializes in classic silhouettes in a lightweight fabrication knitted by the brand in SNZ twist technique to prevent torquing. The collection is made of 100% cotton, and there are so many core colors to choose from. Vintage pink, hunter sage, true black, true white, ink stone, deep navy, slate sky, ivory dust, and silver gray. Pick your favorite top and bottom, feel free to mix and match, and consider yourself dressed. Discover the entire French Terry collection at agjeans.com. Welcome, John. Hi, how are you both? Very well. So, John, let's get started. Well, first of all, tell us how you spend lockdown. Oh, well, I have spent it writing two books, the second and third books of this uh, Dumpty trilogy. I was one of the lucky ones who actually had a project that I could accomplish alone in my room. One thing I like about the book, John, is you're sort of in that Lewis Carroll territory. Sort of Lewis Carroll meets Jonathan Swift. I mean, I think you've got... I'm sure we, listeners want to know, what is the origin? So it's a question like, have you always been a writer? Have you always written these kinds of poems, if we want to call them that? Yes, I actually have always done it, but I've never thought of myself as a poet. It was always a kind of idle, sort of happy surprise. I would write... Uh, little roasts of all my cast members for cast parties. But I'm delighted that you led off with Lewis Carroll because my true models were Lewis Carroll, Edward Lear, and A.A. A. Milne. Yeah, well... And you mentioned Jonathan Swift. He's also uh, he's the great political satirist. That and Alexander Pope. Those are my little callback influences. So the Wicked Wasp of... Twickenham meets the Wicked Wasp of uh, West Los Angeles, maybe. Westwood. Great. 
My goodness, I have such a literary interviewer. This is wonderful. <laughs> John, can we talk about sort of the inception of this project and the song that you wrote about Michael Flynn and how that led you down this path of exquisite satire? This is not something I ever thought I would do. I, I, I tend not to be sort of front foot politically. I have my politics, but I tend to keep them to myself. A little bit of ambivalent about parlaying celebrity into political activism, but... Oscar Eustace of the Public Theater in New York, where I've worked many times, he asked me to perform in a a gala in Central Park in 2017. Uh, And that particular year, they used the gala to pay tribute to all the musical theater successes they'd had, like Hair, Chorus Line, Fun Home, Hamilton, with numbers from all those shows. And they asked me to sing the Major General song from Pirates of Penzance, a Gilbert and Sullivan opera that they'd had a big hit revival of in the 70s, to sing the the famous Major General song. And I suggested it being the sort of radical liberal public theater that I sing it in the person of Michael T. Flynn, as I am the very model of an ex-lieutenant general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. And they thought, sure. So that night, I came out on stage completely done up as Michael T. Flynn in the year of his great downfall and sort of front-page scandals, at which point I sang, Then I can hum a fugue of which I've heard the music's dinner for. There's never been a general the likes of Michael Flynn afore. And suddenly this audience of 2,000 people, they got the joke. And I had rewritten the third verse in the voice of Michael T. Flynn, When President Obama made me head of all things clandestine, he realized he brought to life a governmental Frankenstein. But then I made a killing in a case of public pillory by shouting, lock her up, in my harangue opposing Hillary, etc. And this absolutely killed. It was the hit of the evening. All these liberal New Yorkers finally got a chance to laugh mercilessly at Donald Trump and company. And I described this event just as I've described it to you, to my literary agent about a year later when he bawled me out for not coming up with an idea for a book. And as I sang the song, he said, there's your book. John, you started writing these in the weeks following the election in September 20, correct? Yeah. How much of this was therapy for you? How much of it was a relief that a new administration was in play? How much of it was sheer fun? It was... A tremendous relief. Needless to say, the election result was a tremendous relief. But my publisher begged me. It had been a while since they'd had two straight best-selling political humor books. So they begged me to write a third. I said, no, no, no. And then I got the bright idea. Why not dispose of Donald Trump and write about what a relief it's been that we don't have to talk about him anymore and then go backwards in history and pick out all of Trump's precursors from American history. I titled it A Confederacy of Dumpties, Profiles of American Scoundrels in Verse. And so began my lockdown research project, finding these extraordinary people, many of whom have been completely buried by history. History tends to embrace its heroes and do everything it can to bury the memory of its villains. And it became an absolutely fascinating study in 
in American villainy, even even among our heroes, and all the time writing witty comedy about them. I also had the whimsical idea of simply writing, sending blind submissions, blind invitations to public historians like John Meacham, Walter Isaacson, Doris Kearns Goodwin. And I said, don't spend any more than three minutes on this, but send me five names of American villains whom you suspect I'd never heard of. Because that is part of the fun of the book, is introducing readers to people they'd never heard of. Well, speaking of uh, scoundrels and all the people, I mean, I was, first of all, also want to just point out to people your fantastic portrayal of Roger Ailes in Bombshell, where you basically disappeared in that. Then, as we were chatting earlier, a non-scoundrel, Churchill in The Crown, but I was super intrigued to see the news recently that you're going to be joining Leo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro in the Scorsese adaptation of Killers of the Flower Moon, right? Which is another fantastic, little-known until now chapter in American history. But that's going to be quite a performance, I'm sure. Yes, I was absolutely thrilled to be asked to... It's a small role, a little foreseen role toward the end of this extraordinary film, of this extraordinary book. I've always wanted to work with Marty. He was definitely on my bucket list, and if he'd asked me to take charge of the craft service table, I would have done it. So, yeah, I flew out and did my two weeks. They'd been working on it for five months, and I just swanned in and out of Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Had a wonderful time. You'll be swanning into Los Angeles this weekend uh, for the Emmys. For listeners who haven't watched Perry Mason yet, highly encourage you. I think that was such an unexpected treat of a show. Just was dark and beautiful and smart, and you guys all just did a fantastic job on it on HBO. I thought I should read a little bit of the of one poem in case you'd you'd like to hear it. Oh, please do. I teed up just the first couple of stanzas of the opening poem, which basically describes, well, it sort of introduces the book and states the theme. I'll just read you the first three stanzas, okay? Just to give your listeners a taste of what it sounds like. It's, it's a prologue called Trumpty Dumpty Was Losing the Race. And it begins with the same satirical nod to Humpty Dumpty that begin the first two books. Trumpty Dumpty was losing the race. A scowl beclouded his bright orange face. Watching his margin increasingly widen, he raged at his nemesis, sleepy Joe Biden. The turbulent years of the POTUS's reign had shortened his temper and addled his brain. Like a latter-day Nixon, Capone, or Iago, he prowled the precincts of plush Mar-a-Lago. I won, he inveighed. It's a load of fake news. That nitwit's a loser, and I never lose. In a fever, he frantically seized on a plot to rally his base for a bold coup d'etat. From thence, Dumpty throttled our national life over two gruesome months of contention and strife. Political discourse was drowned in the muck by the quackery spewed by our manic lame duck. His treachery finally came to fruition. He stirred up his mob to an act of sedition. They laid siege in response to his rash exhortation to Biden's electoral certification. We watched them despoiling the Capitol Dome like the Visigoths 
storming the portals of Rome. Horrors, we cried. He's let anarchy loose. We've never beheld such despotic abuse. But never, my friends, is an awfully long time. Our history's replete with corruption and crime. Scoundrels abound and their damage is ample. Dumpty is merely the latest example. And so, for the moment, leave Dumpty aside and try to take all his offenses in stride. The voters have finally shown him the door. We've arrived at a time to revive and restore. Since we don't have to deal with this swine anymore, let's remember the Dumpties who've all gone before. And then off we go on our little journey through American villainy. Off we go in a fantastic book called The Confederacy of Dumpties. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for being here, John. Thank you, John. We can't wait to see you in your next film. Yeah, next time we'll do it in person. And good luck on Sunday. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Well, Michael, before we go off into the sunset, anything at all to recommend? I have a couple things to recommend, and they both roll off of some great lives that we have. One, the first is we've got a very revealing great lives about Patricia Hitchcock, who as a girl had a crush on Laurence Olivier, but that was because her father was the director, Alfred Hitchcock, and he was directing Olivier at the time in Rebecca, and she was a nine-year-old girl. Later, she went on to appear in Psycho, where she appeared in the start of the film as Caroline, who offers to share her wedding night tranquilizers with Janet Lee. But you probably know her best if you haven't seen the film. I highly recommend it for her performance in Strangers on a Train, which is the adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith book. It's one of the best psychological thrillers, I think, that Hitchcock did. And you'll see her there as this kind of owlish character who watches an unhinged man at a cocktail party as he nearly strangles to death a woman she resembles. So I would highly recommend that. And... My second one I'm going to recommend, it's weirdly a film that I mentioned last week, Umbrellas of Shoreborg. And the reason I'm recommending it is just today, Nina Castelnuovo, who was the star of it along with Catherine Deneuve, he just died. And I thought, if you've never seen it, I've talked about it before. I know it's one of your favorite films, Ashley, but Michelle Legrand wrote the music, directed by Jacques Demy. And once you watch it, if you haven't, you'll notice where some key moments in La La Land were appropriated from it or referenced. But it's a film that will bring you nothing but joy, a French version of an American sort of uh, Gene Kelly musical. But it's beautiful, and the music is great. And yeah, Nina Castelnuovo, which, as I said, it won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, got five Academy Award nominations, including one for the Best Foreign Language Film, and most importantly for the song, I Will Wait For You, which uh, was Legrand's contribution as well. So there you go. Beautiful. Well, everything old is new again, and I watched the first episode of HBO's new five-part series, Scenes from a Marriage, which is a remake of Ingmar Bergman's seminal film from 1973. HBO's version was remade by writer-director Haggai Levy, and it stars Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain, who were friends at Juilliard and have known each other for a long time, and they also co-starred in A Most Violent Year. So they have plenty of on-screen chemistry in spades. Um, take up, you know, this new... This story is remade for 2021 Life, 
Jessica Chastain plays Mira, who's a tech executive living outside of Boston with her husband, Jonathan, and their young daughter, Ava. Jonathan's a philosophy professor who's also the couple's primary caregiver for their daughter. And Mira has a very demanding job that has her working nights and she's pulled away from home. But it reminded me that there's nothing quite like the original. If you haven't seen Bergman's scenes from a marriage, it's high time. Uh, this movie was seen by pretty much everyone in Sweden in 1973. I mean, it was a tour de force that really made Bergman an international star and certainly worthy of checking out, especially in the context of this new series. It's really worth going back and revisiting because uh, the way that he portrays both of these protagonists, both as characters, but also as units in a couple, was very groundbreaking for the time, even if some aspects of the series haven't aged terribly well. All right. Michael. On that relatively depressing note, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you for joining us. And Michael, please read us out. I'd be happy to. Before we do, I'd just like to thank our sponsor for this week, AG Jeans. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us. 